I can't do it anymore, Angel. Nine times you have interrupted my finely crafted joke. Some even call it the perfect joke. They say to me, wow, I liked that joke. I've heard people say that, but you just don't let me finish my joke. I ask you as a friend, please let me finish my joke. I can't do that. The reason I cannot let you finish this joke, the singular purpose behind all of the interruptions. Why do I continue to interrupt this car salesman joke? I give you this reason. The reason why I have been for nine weeks interrupting this poor excuse for a joke is... Wait, did, did you hear that? It sounded like something scratching on my walls. Is it? Oh, no, no. The noise is coming from inside my walls. It's the Stacchini. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Cracking Cryptids and Curios. This is once again Matt, joined, as always, by the hobbyist enigma known as Angel. Now, Angel, before we discuss the creature at hand today, I wanted to bring something up as I found this quite intriguing. Last episode, we highlighted a news article about how one should not eat icicles based on the nasty stuff that can be found inside it. The other day, we are talking about this again. And I mentioned how cold and dry it is where I live. The dryness just obliterates my hands. And you mentioned something I never knew, that you make your own hand lotion. Your recipe, which you dubbed The Gentleman, consists of one cup of aloe vera gel, half a cup of jojoba oil, a teaspoon of vitamin E oil, a pinch of shea butter, 10 drops of cedar wood, and five drops of lemon essential oils, and a special ingredient you just won't tell me about. How did this come up that you started to make your own hand lotions, and which is your favorite scent? Well, I, I've always had dry hands and ashy arms, as <laughs> most people are uh, aware. And I've never been able to find a proper product that can keep my hands and arms moisturized to the proper degree that they need to be. So I decided to develop my own. And through careful experimentation, I, I came up with something. Even though I didn't tell you that one ingredient, I also don't mind you listing the rest of them out. Because it, it matters the order that you put them in. Oh, sort of like sometimes with a recipe, it matters what goes in first yep, to get yep. the best bake or yeah, something like that. Yeah, exactly. So what are some of your other favorite scents to combine? Because oh, I know you're man. a, um, you just wafted in, you're, you're one, you're known for your sniffing. Well, there's always, you know, the classic is cinnamon, right? It smells like mm -hmm. you just finished baking some delicious cookies. Then there's um, musk. You know, you know, if you want to feel manly, you know, you just a get, real man yeah, musk, yeah, yeah. just musk, right? Yeah. And uh, 
And then there's like a roadkill, but that you know, it's you know, I like to mix them up every now and then. So it's, it's that's pretty. that's your yet to be finished skunk ape line of it, yeah, smells, right? I, ever since I started the show, I was like, I need to do this. So yeah, it's, man, I, I think you might be becoming the skunk ape. <laughs> You're learning to do its calls with your contrabassoon. You're learning to smell like it. Yeah, and I love lentils, so. Uh-huh. You're just getting hairier and hairier. Uh, it's getting concerning early. Maybe that's the skunk cape was really inside of us all along. Mm-hmm. It's funny that that you do this because when I was in college, there was a um, a show that I found on TV. And I was just flipping through the channels and I was like, oh, my God, I know this guy. And it was my uh, student advisor before that I declared my major. He like he. They check up on you, making sure that you're uh, choosing the classes that you need and mm-hmm. that you have a, a major eventually in mind. And I was like, why is he on TV? And he's with a bunch of other guys. And there are just these three guys. It was called Dads On. And they were just talking about dad stuff. And one of their segments was uh, they're trying to create manly scented candles. <laughs> and I think they had like, what was it? Like freshly cut grass, sawdust that sort of stuff so maybe some sense to keep in mind to get the dad audience <laughs> yeah perhaps mm-hmm. <laughs> get rid of that ashy skin and smell manly still <laughs> you yeah. i mean there are so many um loot box things you can get in the mail now yeah i mean this is this is just something that you could put your your pillows you could put your your you your know, lotions i think you gave away the hobby for next week <laughs> Lotion pillows? <laughs> no, the boxes. No, the boxes. And... No, that's not a hobby. That is a <laughs> that's a side hustle. <laughs> oh my god. So with that being said, how about uh, some looks at some things in the news? So the first article that we have comes from unexplainedmysteries.com. Believe it or not, <laughs> it says man gets drunk on cake due to weird condition. So it goes on to say. 62-year-old Nick Carson suffers from a rare condition that turns carbohydrates directly into alcohol. Some people are known to have a so-called sweet tooth due to their penchant for cakes, chocolates, and other treats. But Carson, a former business owner from Suffolk, England, eating anything rich in carbohydrates makes him literally drunk because his body turns them into alcohol. Known as auto-brewery syndrome, or ABS, the condition means that he can become blind drunk within a matter of minutes just from eating cakes and biscuits. <laughs> He's now forced to take a breathalyzer device everywhere he goes. It's believed that his condition was caused by chemicals he was exposed to 20 years ago. That kind of sucks. It's like a some people get superhuman <laughs> powers in that. He gets his body turns carbs into alcohol. <laughs> Damn. I mean, that's kind of like a superpower. Yeah, uh, shitty one. (laughs) It goes on to say, I basically become an involuntary alcoholic because this condition makes you one, whether you want to be or not, he said. Having a little bit of sugar or carbohydrates can quickly make me become drunk. I try to stick to a keto-based diet, but it's hard because there are carbs in all sorts of foods. I can go from being stone-cold sober to being three times over the driving limit in a matter of minutes, which is quite scary. The effect isn't pleasant, and I have sections of my memory where I have no idea what I've done. I just talk rubbish and walk and walk around in circles. <laughs> Fortunately, his wife has been extremely supportive and is helping him to cope with the condition. I hope that sharing my story will help people become more knowledgeable about ABS, he said. 
I try not to laugh, but it's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm not laughing at him. I'm at him. And the situation the, yeah. sucks. It's uh, it, it kind of makes me re, uh, not makes me rethink it, but I feel like we should rethink the whole blood alcohol thing. I mean, if other people can develop this with whatever chemicals that he was exposed to, like I feel, I feel like there's a vital thing that's left out. Like I don't want to be exposed to <laughs> yeah, specifically like, those chemicals what in my chemicals? life. Chemicals, <laughs> but yeah, it's like you know the guy the guy gets pulled over and he, oh he's stone drunk and it's like it's not his fault. Come on, <laughs> I had a piece of cake. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it just oh, I can't imagine being in that situation. But it, it's just crazy how how the human body can just freak the hell out under certain circumstances. And here's just another case of that happening. Yeah. I, I remember this happening a few, several years ago, maybe even over a decade ago in the news, it came up that some guy, um, his body was producing alcohol like this and, but it wasn't related to a, a chemical exposure. So there's other ways to get it. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think I know that story in, in his, in that man's case, it was that he had the, the brewer's yeast growing in his, uh. Uh, gut and it was fermenting all the carbs that he ate but it, i guess it's a s- kind of similar situation mm-hmm. yeah they're both shitty situations <laughs> so our article also from unexplainedmysteries.com titled mystery large predator kills sheep in england it goes on to say a rural crime team has been investigating a spate of unexplained sheep deaths at a farm in cheshire According to reports, officers visited the farm after several sheep were attacked and killed by an unidentified carnivorous animal earlier this week. Today, PCSO Smith and myself attended a triple sheep killing in Martin Sarcherwall, Winsford District. PC Moss of the Cheshire Police Rural Crime Team wrote on Facebook, This attack occurred overnight from around 9 p.m. on the 7th to 8.30 a.m. the 8th. One sheep and two lambs killed near the farmhouse with the rest of the flock unharmed. There are some extremely unusual elements in the case, and a thorough investigation is currently underway to establish the full circumstances. The case follows on from the deaths of several sheep at another nearby farm last week, prompting concerns that there could be a large animal on the loose, possibly an exotic big cat. The area has very little human interaction at the moment, and the thought is very much on a larger predator and not as initially thought a dog attack the police wrote at the time on speaking to the farmer they confirmed a sighting some years ago of a very large black cat type animal not a not a million miles from this location what's that even supposed to mean (laughs) sightings of large predatory cats have persisted across the british isles for years while it has long been suspected that a population of these animals have been roaming the countryside, conclusive evidence of their existence in the UK has been thin on the ground. These latest sheep deaths, however, may just be the proof authorities have been looking for. So what do you think about that? Well, you know, aside from the obvious some kind of dog or cat, it's obviously the chupacabra, and it's made its way up to the uh, the islands of the UK. Damn it. Choopy needed a holiday <laughs> and he went to Cheshire. Yep. <laughs> He's tired of goats. He wants some lamb and sheep. Damn it. Says, so, you know, they kind of look alike. Let's see if they taste any different. And now it's just like a buffet out there. <laughs> yeah, because they got plenty. 
I have heard of this before of this like idea that the British Isles have this like unknown large cat population. It's really I, I almost feel like it's the North American Bigfoot is the British Isles large cat. Like it's just this thing that some people really believe and one person in particular, that of Carl Shooker, uh, has written a book specifically, I think one of his newest books, is on the big cats of England. Oh my god. What does he know? This might. This is like a Carl Shooker destined to be commented on article. Yeah, I mean, we, we should probably seek him out and uh, see if he can give us a good old soundbite. <laughs> Uh-huh. Get some advice here, too. Maybe he can aid the rural police Cheshire crime team mm-hmm. with his expertise because it's not a, a done story. So we can try to follow this as it goes along to see what the hell is killing these sheep because <laughs> we need answers. Yeah. Any final things to say about mystery large predators killing sheep at a farm before we continue on with our uh, cryptid at hand? I think there's enough killing coming up. We don't need to stay on this. Mm-hmm. Let's get to the the harsher, more grotesque killings, shall we? Our last cryptid, the Rougarou, had a splendid little attempt at usurping the season two god known as Santa Claus. <laughs> now, believe it or not, the shape changers get a second attempt here at some good old-fashioned regicide. But as the old saying goes, if you take a shot at the king, you better not miss. And bless his little cotton socks, but the Rougarou missed. I think our exploration of Acadian settlement into Spanish-controlled Louisiana and the overall European werewolf lore, we sufficiently covered the traditional European werewolf idea for our purposes, I believe. This week, however, we go down a different route. As season one proved, we love to show some Native American representation in this show, and by golly, we got some more of that to inject straight into the veins today. We'll see if the entity known as the Stakini has what it takes to bring down Santa Claus once and for all. So this is about the time of the show, Angel, that I question you. Have you ever heard of the Stakini before we started research? I have, but only when I've been to the Everglades and gotten essentially a tour by uh, one of the Seminole people there. Dang. Yeah. So I think part of that was why I was really excited to dive into this topic mm-hmm. to see if I can, we can learn more about it. The Everglades, do, do I need to get the Iraqi airboat back? <laughs> Are we going to the Everglades? You may have to. <laughs> no, no. It was so scary. I can honestly say that I have never heard of any stories, never seen any pictures or artistic representation or ever even seen the name before. If you that are listening out there are like me and have absolutely no idea what this thing could look like, we have a bit of an explanation, possibly of what it could be. Let's lift the veil, peek inside, and see what monstrosity is underneath. Angela, I picture this going like Pee Wee Herman seeing large Marge's face, (laughs) her true face, for the first time. So, in the book Superstitions, a handbook of folklore, myths, and legends from around the world, author D.R. McElroy and no knock here on old DR, but a glance of her initials. I wonder if she abbreviated to DR to make it look like doctor. 
but god dang it makes it hard to find her on the internet with those initials <laughs> it was very very difficult anyways <laughs> dr describes the stikini as a giant undead man-eating owl by night and human by day dr goes on to say each night they are said to vomit up their entrails and hang them in a tree allowing them to shape shift to then become at daybreak and swallow the organs to become human again the creatures feed on human hearts which they pull still beating from the throats of their victims they return to their homes with the hearts and cook them in magical pots before consuming them a minimum of one heart a night must be consumed to keep the creatures alive so we have a heart-eating giant owl that regurgitates its organs most of the time it is in the appearance of a great horned owl and indeed some even say that the word stikini or stigini or ishtakini translates to horned owl what do you think of this uh, angel i mean it's it sounds frightening already in fact i've heard that in some cases even talking about it might uh, affect you so i'm not even gonna repeat its name after <laughs> oh no <laughs> this is a one-man show this time around you're not even gonna talk about it <laughs> nope she's gonna talk about rainbows and, and flowers uh-huh <laughs> To me, I, it feels like a really, like, pretty unique entity. It expels its organs. And in other sources even saw that it claimed that it expels its soul or just human essence. And this, to me, I think in a really symbolic sense, it feels like even a stronger shedding of one's identity and, like, complete embrace of nature, even more so than the European werewolf that I argued in the Ruguru episode. Mm-hmm. The vomiting of organs which, my God, how does that work? And now I think I have one more thing to fear beyond thinking too much about swallowing my tongue while I'm taking a pill. It feels like the ridding of those organs by some accounts, the soul, this transformation rips you of your humanity. Would you agree with that, Angel? Yes. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think think you may even say you're not even human at that uh, once you're one of these things yeah it feels like even like a werewolf transformation like to the nth degree yeah this is some hardcore transformation you expel your organs and put them in a tree and then you go about your destruction and mayhem Mm -hmm. now here's a wild question for you the entity that you brought up in the ruguru episode the hag that sheds her skin what happens if you take the skin of that thing and place the organs of the stikini in it well, because I sort of picture like the skin, like a zipper, you just zip it up. <laughs> so what I find interesting about this question is I think it is my belief that that the, the, the creature, the Sukuyant and the Stakini are very um, maybe similar or even one in the same, but with different uh, interpretations. Mm-hmm. That's a good way to look at it of maybe um, original point of origin but at some point mm, spread somewhere and became sort of different representations of the same creature it's a good way to look at it so this like concept in general of these things shedding their skins and organs what do you what do you make of that it's like you said i i think it's uh it's to show to emphasize the fact that these things are not human that even though they may look human you are not to entertain and 
anything they they you know present to you this this is not a human thing you don't want to be anywhere near or deal with it and i I think that's just meant to emphasize that no these things are not yeah ever gonna be fixed sort of like the idea of like if if you become the stikini that you you are like outside of society like you're you've been expelled from yeah the the local group and like you cannot be redeemed or like there's no it's not like the purpose of prison you can't be rehabilitated you are you are so far gone that you become something else at night yeah so with that being said are you ready to begin our hunt for the stikini yes (laughs) like i mentioned earlier i've unfortunately rid ourselves of the Iraqi airboat and instead invested in some some more traditional cryptid hunting gear. I got myself this neato camouflage outfit and from an army surplus store, a full ghillie suit. Unfortunately, that was all the money I had. So we couldn't afford the game trail camera that we wanted. I got us the next best thing. Can you guess what it is? 70 year old rations. 70 or 7? Seven? 70. <laughs> 70? Are they like World War II rations? Yes. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Open them up, they're going to be dust inside. <laughs> oh, wow, that is a good thing to have when hunting for cryptids, maybe. I got us a refrigerator box that I painted green to look like a trail cam. And my idea was we tie the box to a tree with you inside with your phone, ready to take pictures if something comes by. Does that sound good to you? It sounds foolproof. <laughs> I I know. Just don't fall through the box. <laughs> it's an expensive box. The other thing that I know to be 100% splendidly perfect is the world's greatest axiom, Cotton Eye Joe's Razor, which states for something to have come from somewhere, it must therefore go somewhere. So where did the Stikini come from? And I think trying to explore... Native American entities can often be a difficult task at hand as there's just so much reliance on oral tradition to pass down the stories of things like the stikini. The other aspect of that compounds with something that you said, Angel, specifically for the stikini, is that it is apparently this idea that even talking about the stikini can make you a target of its wrath or speaking its name could turn you into one. Because of this, it was often left to shamans or medicine men to speak of the entity. With that in mind, I've tried my best to sort of separate what I believe to be just sort of made-up stuff that's out there on the internet or things applied to the stikini in a non-native context from the actual lore. So we'll see what we have by the end of this. I think the best place to start an investigation like this is in the form of what the stikini takes, the owl, and figure out sort of why is that so important. And in an article from centerofthewest.org, which is actually a Buffalo Bill Museum organization, Hmm. the author of this article, Anne Hay, she writes, Traditionally, many Native American tribes considered owls to be a symbol of death. Hearing an owl hoot or screech, therefore, can be a bad omen. Historically, many tribes believed that evil medicine men who practiced bad and hurtful medicine could shapeshift into animals. These animals would often be owls. In the form of an owl, they could fly silently through the night to spy on people as they sleep. She goes on further with, The owl's relationship with medicine men could be used for a person's benefit, but it could also be used against you or against a member of another tribe. 
In some cases, the owl could be trying to steal a man's soul. The owl could also send death or disease to an enemy through the bad medicine man. Since the people in the tribe could not tell if a bird was a real owl or a shapeshifter or an owl sent on a mission to hurt them, all owls were avoided for safety reasons. So, Angel, we have we have owls that can't be trusted being established in some Native American traditions. But I must ask, have you ever had a bird that you looked at and you're like, oh, shit, this thing's got it in for me? Well, there was that one time that the Mothman was presented to me, but I didn't know it was the Mothman at the time. I mean, that, that probably he, counts. He's so goddamn cryptic, you never <laughs> can interpret right. But I think generally, well... Let me tell you, there's, I call these bully birds around my neighborhood. <laughs> no. <laughs> so this is, this is some angel mythology. Yes. Produced mythology. Because I, I don't know what kind of bird they are. I'm sure some they have a, a, a name. But during, uh, I don't know what season, but it's probably their mating season. They get overly aggressive and territorial. But they like to be in the trees. So every time I'm walking my dog... I'm nowhere near them, but they seem to not like the dog or me. So they'll swoop down from the tree and just kind of whiz by close enough to, like, I guess, warn me. Mm -hmm. And this pisses me off because I know they're trying to they're trying to get me. So I try to, you know, I try to fight back. I show them, hey, don't (laughs) mess with us. You know, we're not some, you know, some creature that you could just swoop down. Because they'll 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 swoop down. They'll go to the other tree and they'll c- keep swooping. And usually I see them like trying to swoop down at the dog. So I'll take the mm-hmm. the leash off the dog. And when they swoop down, I try to whip them with the leash. And then they fly <laughs> away real quick. And they're like, Oh no, we can't do that no more. And they stop. They learn their lesson. They're like, Damn, this guy's this guy brought weapons to the <laughs> to the diving fight. Hey, you know, you gotta you gotta show them. You know, this is the 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 nature, the world of nature. You gotta. Uh-huh. Can't can't be civilized. <laughs> uh-huh. You gotta outcompete those birds. Exactly. Dude. I have sort of a like a side story here as far as the shaman portion goes. So I was reading a, this account from the a from the early nineteen hundreds that described this. It was basically a shaman competition. It was a creek shaman versus a competing tribe, and they would try to basically one up each other with tricks. So it'd be like the one shaman does something, and then the other guy responds. No matter what the creek shaman did, he kept getting outdone. The other dude would just, like, he'd do stuff like backflips, all sorts of stuff. It sort of felt, as I was reading it, like a dance battle. And then the creek shaman, he, he basically does the drop the mic moment, so to say. And he starts twirling and twisting, and he opens his cloak, and a swarm of bees fly out. <laughs> And attack the other shaman, who then runs away oh and then for, forfeits the match. <laughs> Can you imagine? Can you imagine being in a a competition of some sort and the other guy has bees? <laughs> I mean, how, do you, how do you do that? I don't know. It was like, did he just have the bees in there in like a jar? And just I, like I wonder, for his like, bee moments? How many times has he done this? Like, did the other guy not learn his lesson? I don't. How do you even get the bees to do what you want? I feel like if you let the bees out, they're going to attack you. Well, he's a shaman. Come on. I guess, yeah. <laughs> he has properties that I would not have over the bees. But, damn. 1900s are crazy. <laughs> We need more of that in this world. Yeah, I'm going to, you know, dueling at dawn with bees. 
Mm-hmm. Some backflips, bees. <laughs> I mean, damn. In some respects, though, the owl was also used as a cautionary figure for children. Like something to the effect of, don't go out at night, the owl will swoop down and get you. Very similar in effect to the Rukuru, to keep kids from wandering too far from home. So traditionally, for some tribes, night was linked with death and the underworld. On top of that, owl hoots can be hella creepy. Do you have any crazy owl encounters? Uh, Yeah, I mean, here in Florida, there's we have a ton. There are... There's these owls called burrowing owls, and in the apartment complexes across uh, from me, they they have like the volleyball courts in sand, and nobody. Oh, shit. Do they go in the? Do they go no, in the volleyball court? You never see anybody playing there, but you see like little mounds in the sand. That's where they live, and I've seen them. They'll be they'll have they'll be out and they'll just just whoop, back into the little burrows. So that's them. And then you have these other ones called Eastern Screech Owls. I've never actually seen one, but I hear them at night all the time. And they sound like little, like, stereotypical UFO noises. Like, (laughs) oh, no. (laughs) Yeah, that's creepy. Yeah. (laughs) I can completely understand the, like, uh, relationship that has formed with the owl here. They are weird ass animals <laughs> i remember uh, in one of my apartments here that we had an owl right outside our bedroom window and it would just hoot and hoot and hoot and hoot and then after like several months it went away and i was like well where'd the owl go we hated it at the time but then it left and it's like oh want the <laughs> owl back <laughs> so you get used to them too yeah um as long as you're not creepy owl hoots. <laughs> then, then no that's no good yeah, not the not the ones that sound like screaming horses. <laughs> nope. Oh God. Why is there a horse in the tree? <laughs> <laughs> so according to Paul Morrison, also known as Swamp Owl, he's a guy that did seminal historical presentations and reenactments. He says these seminoles believe that souls are transferred to owls, which carry the souls to heaven or hell. So we have possibly the ultimate soul bearer in the form of the stikini as well. Is there anything more badass that you can think of, Angel, than a giant owl ushering your soul to heaven or hell? Um, nope. <laughs> no, I mean, it doesn't get better than that. That's just an awesome image. In an anthropology publication in 1907, the Creek Indians of Tuskegee Town, it was written that the Stikini, or what the author actually translates to Little Screech Owl, is an unfavorable spirit of the dead causing death or announcing death to the one who hears it. The Seminole have their origins springing from off from the creek, and it would appear that this aspect of the Stikini sort of stayed with them. So now the origins of the first Stikini is something that I don't think we will ever be able to narrow down to a specific story. But there are a few stories that at least tell of interactions with the entity. One that a lot of sources that I found they actually point to this one story, which is on Folk Tales of Florida, a website that was published back in 2012. In a post titled Tampa's Stikini Witches, it states, Through the first Seminole War, a small group of elderly Seminole women were allowed to remain in their homes on north of Fort Brook on the Hillsborough River. In 1835, the United States moved forward with plans to re- relocate all of the Seminole Indians west of the Mississippi. 
When given this news, these women were enraged, refused to move, and threatened that Fort Brooke would forever be cursed. Soon thereafter, 110 soldiers left Fort Brooke, moving northward. The first morning at camp, a young soldier was found dead in his bed. An investigation concluded that the man's heart had been removed. The same scenario happened night after night as fear of the Seminole women's curse grew stronger. Soldier Joseph Sprague abandoned his post. As he fled through the forest at dusk, he saw the group of Seminole women whom had cursed the soldiers. He watched in horror as they kneeled, chanted, and expelled their internal organs from their mouths. One by one, they then took the form of owls and took off into the night. They were the Stikini witches of Seminole legend coming to exact their revenge. Sprague hurried the news to Fort Brooke, but by the time reinforcements arrived, all 109 other soldiers lay dead in their beds with their hearts removed. The group of elderly Seminole were never seen again, but will always be remembered in this story of the Dade Massacre. How about that for a story? It's pretty brutal. I think it's safe to take this story with a bit of skepticism. <laughs> I say that because there are some things to pull from it, though. So they dropped the name Joseph Sprague, which I actually looked into, and it's something for us to sort of look at. He was, by most accounts, one of actually three men out of the 110 that actually were involved in this that survived an attack by the Seminole. On the flip side, rather than these elderly woman that the story tells of, there was a basically an ambush by the Seminoles, where in that ambush, the Seminoles only lost three men compared to the 107 that the Americans lost. I saw one breakdown of this on a website. It's called trippingonlegends.com that I sort of agreed with the breakdown. It stated, basically, the Seminoles easily defeated the Americans based on pretty much like sound strategy. And the idea is, why introduce such a miraculous win with the aid of the Stikini witches for this story, because typically that would be reserved for a battle or a happening that maybe didn't go too well for the Seminoles, not one that they overwhelmingly triumphed at and just slaughtered the Americans. Folklore tends to be something to explain or rationalize things that did not go well for a people. So is that something that you would agree with? Sort of it's odd that, like of some something that actually has historical roots, for the story that's related to, like, there's proof that the Seminole overwhelmingly won this. So why the attachment of the Stikini women to it? Yes. Um, yeah, I agree. I definitely seems to be every time I've read stories like that, it's, it's usually to explain, as you mentioned, uh, those, um, things that didn't go their way. I'm, I wonder where did this story come from? Like who's telling the story? Yeah, it's sort of, I'd say, representative that it's like a seminal oral story or something like that. But there's no right. There's uh, no, there's no like actual, proof of yeah. or no linking of where the story. So comes it from. it kind of sounds like to me like the the same thing with the Piasaw where, yeah, yeah, where it's like some guy probably added it in just to, I don't know, if if I were thinking about this maliciously, I would say that somebody not a seminal would have added the stikini part because to kind of take away the the idea that the Seminoles themselves are powerful enough to, to have done this, that they needed extra help, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I completely understand. Another thing that we can extract from this story is that the stikini is a vessel for vengeance. 
and this may take a moment to explain my thought, but this goes to Mr. $20 Bill himself, Andrew Jackson, who is entwined in seminal history. So I have to ask you, Angel, where would you rank Jackson in your list of favorite presidents? Well, aside from the fact that I am apparently his reincarnated self... (laughs) Oh, I forgot about that. That's a long, that is a very, very long story that's, that we don't have time to go through. That's a story for another podcast. <laughs> um, he is, I believe, the close to the worst president. Not the worst, but the, my most hated. Yeah. I'll go through it here in a moment, but the guy's a douchebag. Yeah. Uh, on, on a character level. Yeah. So... One thing I want to bring up is when we were younger, probably like 14 or 15, we used to do what today would probably be referred to as memeing the shit out of Andrew Jackson and James <laughs> Polk. I have uh, sort of like no idea but uh, why, but I often wonder this of if teenagers today continue on with the great fun that we had, you know, some good old memes about presidents from the 1800s. <laughs> Just... Yeah, I'm sure every teenager every, <laughs> every normal kid does that, right? Yeah, it's completely normal. So from 1817 to 1818, Jackson led campaigns against the Seminoles, which became the first Seminole War. And if you are actually interested in American history, this is definitely worth a uh, taking a look at this time period with Jackson because it's pretty insane. Yeah, and I don't want to go too too much into it, um, but just the, the quick and dirty of it all. So President Monroe. He sends Jackson to Florida to keep Florida from becoming a slave refuge. So slaves would often escape there and join with the Seminole or live in uh, Spanish-controlled Florida. And indeed, the Spanish even promised freedom to any escaped slaves that made it there. The order that Monroe gave him was gave Jackson was pretty much like to just stop that. Jackson's response was like, okay, Monroe, hold my beer. <laughs> he basically invades Florida and just starts killing Seminoles. He kills the Spanish. He actually executes two British citizens that were aiding the Seminole. Not too far removed from the War of 1812. Yeah. So Monroe's administration is basically pulling their hair out like, what the F is this guy doing down there? It's like diplomatic chaos. Pretty much Jackson unilaterally declaring war on the Spanish. And Jackson don't care. He don't care who you are. He gonna kill you. But... One good thing comes out of all this, Angel. Do you know what that is? What? Due to popular demand, Angel's Treaty Talk Corner is back. Excellent. I was waiting for this. The the famous Adams-Onish Treaty of 1819 saw Spain giving up claim of Florida to America. But in your opinion, what is arguably the best outcome from when the treaty was actually ratified in 1821? The best outcome is probably the the (laughs) jeez i have i'll give you a moment to put your thoughts together (laughs) let's see the what was the question again (laughs) (laughs) what what was the best outcome of the treaty, the Adams Onus Treaty of eighteen nineteen, when it was actually ratified in eighteen twenty one? Oh, the best outcome. Okay, I see what you're saying. Do you need me to use it in a sentence? <laughs> Can you please use "best outcome" in a sentence, please? <laughs> the Adams Onus Treaty had arguably the best outcome 
1821. What was it? <laughs> that is the demand for more flowers. And this concludes Angel's Treaty Talk Corner once again. <laughs> In reality, not Angel reality, <laughs> Jackson retires from the army. So that was a, a plus. That was the best outcome of all that. But then he's declared governor of Florida. So that kind of sucks. And then like eight years later, he's president. So that kind of sucks even more. <laughs> but what does this have to do with anything? So the story states a small group of elderly Seminole women were allowed to stay behind at the end of the first Seminole War. But the truth is that the Seminole were not immediately removed from the area after the adams Onis Treaty. So this then, Angel, leads us to a surprise episode of Angel's Treaty Talk Corner. Whoa! <laughs> In 1823, the Treaty of Camp Moultrie, I ask you, Angel, why was it so vital to American and Native relations? Because it cemented the common enemy, which was the French. <laughs> I was going to say each other, and that's probably more <laughs> realistic. But this concludes the surprise edition of Angel's Treaty Talk Corner. So basically, the Americans moving into Florida were like, damn, those natives got some nice land. Why isn't that mine? So pressure from the settlers basically leads the government to this treaty, which then puts the Seminoles on a reservation in central Florida. Jackson becomes president, 1829, and is like, you know what I want? I want all this land. And then it was pretty popular at the time of, uh, of that era to just boot all the natives to the west of the Mississippi. And in 1835, after yet another treaty and then resistance from the natives to actually move, the Second Seminole War began. So the way the story in question portrays the Stikini witches, they killed the Americans while they slept in camp taking the hearts of 109 other soldiers. But this really can't be the case because there are reports of other survivors besides just Sprague. And absolutely no reports of men with their hearts removed. I suppose one could argue that the Americans were heartless for their actions, but that's more of like a figure of speech than a literal occurrence. But back to the actual point at hand here, clearly the Seminole had a understandable desire for vengeance upon the Americans in Florida. So the idea of this stikini as a vessel of vengeance, to me, is quite interesting. What are your thoughts on this, Angel? Do you think that like this story is something that can be trusted in the lore of the stikini? Or, I guess, what are you, what are you thinking? I think after, after these educational sessions, I think it's cemented. I think I'm more firm in my belief that this story, the, 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 somebody added that tale maybe to enrage the americans to 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 fight more against the seminoles it's like what they tore out the hearts oh i guess that that aspect of it too looking at it that way it makes the natives look even more savage like yeah like they are so removed from civilization that tearing people's hearts out yeah so the dade massacre that is 100 real that completely happened. The rest of the story certainly needs more evidence to support those claims. And indeed, the like, as I was reading through the story, I also thought, like, how bad of a commander do they have that night after night men kept getting their hearts ripped out? <laughs> and they kept camping there? Like, <laughs> get the hell out of there. Yeah. Maybe it was all Andrew Jackson's doing. 
Yeah, he's like, damn it, you stay put. I won't have no no cowards. None of my soldiers <laughs> pussyfooting around, having their hearts ripped out. You yep. stand your ground. <laughs> yep, it's the kind of man he was. Now, I saw one claim that supports this vengeance aspect, but I take it with several grains of salt because I could find no true evidence of where some of this claim comes from. But the idea is also on the trippingonlegends.com site where it states the origins of the stikini involves trauma and revenge taken too far. There are women who have been wronged in some way, usually sexually, either by their own men, former slaves, or white Americans who made their way into Creek and Seminole lands. They called upon a goddess named She Who Walks the Circle, a former mortal who wished for powers herself and then abused them to become a cursed deity. She grants the women the power to get back at their tormentors, much like she was granted power, and they abused it like she did. They become drunk with their new abilities and continue to kill once the scales have been balanced, causing them to become cursed. They are no longer women, but vampire-like wraiths who can find comfort only in each other, the uh, site concludes. So I could find absolutely nothing about this she who walks the circle in any Native American religious representation. What do you think of this claim, Angel? Well... It kind of, to me, it sounds like, uh, um, I don't know if you've ever watched The Children of the Corn, a Stephen King, um, I think it was written by him, at least his story. I don't know if I've saw the first one, but I know I've seen like the 10,000 sequels on like Sci-Fi <laughs> Channel. Yeah. Well, the the children, the, the idea is that there's a town that's just full of children. All the adults have been killed by the children because they're essentially sacrificing the adults to this demonic entity that lives in the cornfields called he who hides behind the row or something like that <laughs> so it just kind of reminded me of that it it completely sounds like a name that would be out of like a tabletop rpg <laughs> it's also funny to me it's funny that you bring that up because i just did a search for she who walks the circle is that what it's yeah she who walks the circle and i found this thing called third age of dragon right some website Dangerous Rifts Campaigns. The Dangerous Rift Campaigns? Oh, no. That sounds dangerous. It's just like... It looks like it's a tabletop RPG. Is it like a a home-brewed tabletop RPG? Maybe. And there's just like all these things that... uh, Detailing like different items. It's like a bunch of Native American stuff here that they've put down. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like they're using the Sioux and the... It says, while sitting in the tent, gives Drago and Mage each knowledge of one spell. So this is clearly like a game, like they're writing down notes. And here it says, the third contains the three circles embedded within each other. The symbol of she who walks the circle. Damn. <laughs> so it, it sounds like one of our favorite words to use on this podcast, an amalgamation of like various <laughs> Native American stuff yeah. put into a game. <laughs> yep. Well... There goes that. <laughs> I'm glad I brought that up because I'm glad I inherently did not trust it. <laughs> Gosh. Gosh. She who walks the circle. <laughs> I think it is important to mention that despite the government's best efforts, they still weren't able to rid themselves of the Seminoles as by the 1840s, they were just like, God damn, this is tough. <laughs> and they gave up. Some Some estimates put that the government spent upwards of $40 million in today's money 
between the Seminole Wars and getting the Seminoles across the um, Mississippi. It didn't work out as much as Andrew Jackson wanted, so I have some <laughs> happiness, I guess, out of all this. <laughs> it, I yeah, I think it's interesting. First of all, when you researching these things, especially with the Seminoles, I always get the impression that everyone always talks about the Seminoles from Oklahoma, and I get the impression mm-hmm. that they don't think there's any in Florida anymore. Um, mm. I think it's interesting that they w- w- the reason they stopped is because they they got they would move further into the Everglades, and I mm-hmm. guess the white settlers were like. We can't deal with this terrain. And they just gave up. <laughs> it's and, too difficult. And, and it's it's interesting because a similar thing happened in in what is now Colombia. Um, there's this uh, group of the natives there called the Tairona. They, when the Spanish came, they just kept moving more and more into the mountains. And they were like... Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, we're not going to deal with that. They just stopped trying to get them out of there. <laughs> At first, I thought you were going to bring up the Battle of Boyaca. <laughs> no. Nope. This is a different location. Uh-huh. But it's, yeah, it's a, you know, a, a good tactic. Just go somewhere where your people after you uh, are like, this is more trouble than it's worth to kill these people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, some people's had to actually do that, but that's our world. If, supposedly, like Joseph Sprague, you find yourself eye-to-eye with a stikini, how can you defend yourself? This time around, a pocket full of beans won't be useful like the Rougarou. <laughs> so it's claimed that there is only one specific way to kill the creature. You must find its regurgitated innards and destroy them in a specific manner. There are some variations in that action, however, either burning or salting the organs or using a specially blessed arrow, which has a owl feather and an arrow tip that's been slathered in herbs prepared by a shaman or medicine man. So most likely, if you are within the gaze of this creature, you are pretty screwed. Do you agree with that, Angel? Yes, definitely. One one other thing that I saw, too, was in that 1907 anthropological thing. It talks about a, basically like a stikini dance. It was called the stikino banga, which they translated to little screech owl dance. And it said was functionally a prayer to the screech owl for immunity from its visits. These dances are performed publicly on the square ground and all spectators may take part freely. Um, and then it says in other cases, dances are directed as acts of worship or emulation to the spirits of animals whose flesh is eaten so that they will not become averse to being killed for food. The emulation is believed to affect the spirits of the dead animals in their reincarnation upon the earth. So sort of uh, this idea that doing this dance to just say like, okay, Stikini, you're just going to stay in the woods and not, (laughs) we're going to just keep you at bay and sort of don't bother us. But if it's coming after you, I think you're pretty much screwed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Is there anything you wanted to toss into the mouth of this giant owl before we go into the latter half of our axiom? Yeah. A little earlier, you mentioned how it's difficult to find any information because of, uh, especially because it's uh, native American stuff. So it's usually done through, um, passed down through the oral tradition. So I decided to, I thought to myself, what's the equivalent of the oral tradition nowadays that's not the oral tradition? And that's YouTube. 
I, I went on YouTube to look up some videos on this thing. And, of course, it's all a bunch of white girls talking about it. But it, the, Why? <laughs> the comments, the comment section is what attracts all the, all the people, at least they claim, to be either Seminole or Creek. So I, I took a bunch of anecdotes from the, from the comment section to kind of see what, you know, the variations of, of this thing. Because everywhere on the Internet, we, we hear it's the same thing seems like it's a copy and paste of the creature vomits up its organs and goes to eat the heart of a person and then comes back. Yeah, it's like the, the same three sentences over and yeah. over and yeah. over and over. <laughs> so one of them says, legend says they also prey on women while they sleep. If a girl wakes up with three scratches on her arm, that means the Stagini was in her room the previous night. Another one says, one woman told me that when she was a teenager, she dreamt of one assaulting her. And when she woke up, there were scratches inside her legs. Another comment says, I just know they scratch you three times, misplace your belongings, and bad juju. Oh, man. It sounds like these people got off easy. Everyone <laughs> else gets their heart ripped out through their throat. <laughs> right. But this uh, stikini was like a prankster and moved some objects yeah, in the and, room. And, it's st- and it still varies widely. Another one says, if you hear one outside your bedroom window at night, someone you know is going to die. That's, that's all they say about it. Not you. So that's a completely different take on it. Then mm-hmm. it's like, oh god, it's almost like the Mothman, like something like a premonition, premonitory. Yeah, kind of like uh huh. Someone's gonna die. Who's it gonna be? <laughs> Another one says, "I woke up with six scratches on my chest in June 2016. Then six more scratches on my chest on June 2017, and haven't had it since." That was the June Stagini, apparently, <laughs> right? <laughs> possibly now um i'm i'm starting to see a pattern a lot of uh, a lot of the, the the anecdotal tales seem to be more like uh like you said there is a more mischievous kind of thing but what's uh interesting is the scratches thing that people waking up with scratches because i know you remember this uh maybe a few months ago I told you i had a weird scratch uh-huh. some scratches on my arms and i sent you a picture and everything I'm starting to think I was visited by one of these things. What do you think? Well, I mean, you have all the components here. You got the hoots outside. Mm-hmm. You got freaking owls living in your volleyball court. Yep. Supposedly just a single hoot is a good enough indicator that you're going to die. And if you got a whole flock of them out there, they're just ready to slaughter. So maybe you're lucky you only got some scratches. <laughs> yeah, maybe it was a warning. Of what? I don't remember because this is so long ago. <laughs> it's, uh, what's interesting too about the scratches, like a lot of people kept mentioning three scratches. Mm-hmm. And typically in, I guess, Catholicism or Christianity, like three scratches is the sign of, of Satan or demonic yeah. entity scratching you. So it's a weird, cause like the mocking of the Trinity. Yeah. So it's a weird, like, crossover too of, uh, of that aspect. Yeah. It could be like an amalgamation. Due to the influence, <laughs> I, God, I knew, they have I knew, I, I knew you'd like that there. <laughs> but uh, yeah, due to the influence of the of the of the settlers, because I don't remember why I read this, but I I read somewhere where it was like that the the magic number for a lot some Native American tribes were actually like four and not three, like things would happen in fours. So okay. yeah, yeah, and the the threes for like. Number one thing that pops into my mind is like deaths always come in threes. 
like a specific yeah. like celebrity deaths yeah so numbers <laughs> who needs them <laughs> what do they mean <laughs> but most importantly of all is what i you know it's this is not this is a theory of sorts where you know we've talked about the fact that this is similar to like there's some sim- uh, similar properties to the Sukriant that we talked about in the Rugeru episode. And Sukriant was actually, I believe it's essentially the, the Rugeru derived itself from that because it was called either the Sukriant or the Lugaru, which was just uh, the fr- the more French way of saying werewolf. Mm-hmm. So the the fact that these these creatures all embody this, this idea of, of shape-shifting and also either eating some organ of the human or draining its blood, as was mentioned in the Ruger episode. My theory is that in ancient times, there's these creatures that did those things. And they, these creatures, started to split somewhere down the line. And one evolved to become a true vampire and the other one be tr- evolved to become a true werewolf. And I think the werewolves and vampires were actually just one creature at some point in their evolutionary timeline. It's, it's the reverse underworld theory. Yep. They all they all came from the same thing and now they hate each other and they're fa- fighting mm-hmm. because they don't know their lineage. They don't know their, 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 their what they've descended from. Mm-hmm. And... I've seen this sort of idea in other aspects of like two chaotic forces against each other being at war for so long that the descendants over time, they just don't even know what the original war purpose was. They just understand that they need to hate the other side because of it. So it's sort of like almost like that of whatever this original divergence was and whatever event caused them to split and become diametrically opposed forces yeah that's you know it's probably long lost <laughs> to in in history yeah so then where did it go so if you find yourself in, out in the woods a putrid smell across your nose it may just be the innards of the stakini so it may be best to get the hell out of there as soon as possible if the creature hasn't found its daily heart it may just need yours with all entities tied to an oral tradition however as long as those people still exist telling that story. The creature will live on in some sense is how I view it. So with the final portion of this episode, Angel, the rubric of power, mm-hmm. how do you rank the powers of the Stikini, Stagini, Ishkatini? <laughs> it's like it's like the swamp ape it's with like the, the yeah, yeah. SD Chop Chalky. <laughs> That's right. The thing about the Stagini is that it was... It rem- everything about it reminded me of the Rugaru. So I went with it into this thinking, all right, this is Rugaru 2.0. I'm going to f- correct the mistakes I made when I <laughs> when I No, don't ranked- say that. There were there were no mistakes made in the rubric of power. <laughs> when I ranked the Rugaru. <laughs> when I initially ranked the powers of the Rugaru, you made some pretty compelling arguments. As to why... Oh, did that amend your score? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I've docked some points from the power in this uh, section because 
it's it's shape shifting is all right, but it, we know it can be killed, right? It's not immortal. It it's not as bad as the the Rougarou where you know you can just trick it with some rice, <laughs> <laughs> throw your pocket beans. Yeah, and it's it's still pretty a pretty fearsome thing. I mean, have you ever seen a barn owl? Those things are scary looking. I'm afraid of every single owl. <laughs> creepy. So this one got a three point five in power. I was going to say, wasn't power the one that you said you removed, like, a couple points? Yeah. And still gave it a 3 points. I gave it, like, 3.75. Yep. Oh, God. It still gets me. So the <laughs> powers of the of the Stikini, I sort of have this thought of, you know, the transformation, the way I was reading about it, is very unique. The expulsion of vital organs is one of the... It's so crazy. And the way I think of it, those... You know, those are considered one of the most vulnerable things of a person. The whole exposed belly and the innate desire to protect it conflicts with this. The creature, you know, literally expels its weaknesses is the way that I was looking at it. And Mm. that is bad ass. (laughs) So how has this thing not become like a horror movie icon? I just have no idea how this is not more like when to go. Screw you. Like. (laughs) Stakini is where it's at. Yep. It can grow to reportedly nine feet tall after transformation. You know, it can rip your heart out. It's a freaking nine feet tall demon owl. No, thank you. <laughs> and the way I was thinking about it as I was putting the powers together is like, I see this thing as a nine foot tall Jason Voorhees in owl form. Like it's pretty much unstoppable while on the hunt. One thing that's, I could not find a definitive conclusion on was if the transformation is voluntary or involuntary, but I was leaning more towards involuntary just because uh, in a lot of the explanations, it just sort of happens to occur at night. Yeah. And I guess one of the other weaknesses is supposedly daylight. So it has to transform back in daylight, but it wasn't clear if that decision to transform was involuntary or voluntary. Because if you think about it, if it's weak during the daylight, then that means it can still be in owl form during the daylight or else it would never have a weakness to daylight. So I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) But one thing I do know is that you hate this specific power based on old episodes, but it flies (laughs) and I can dig that. Um, Does it though? Does it it, fly? It's it's, it's a (laughs) giant owl. Of course it flies. (laughs) Another thing that I saw was um, like a lot of claims that it kept being, um, and you you brought it up too, but it being vampire-like, but I never really got the feeling of it being, like I didn't understand where that came from. Yeah. Of, of, um, like it's ripping your heart out. Like it's not, it's not, using you it to drain like over and over and over again it, it kills you and it has to find a new heart you're not gonna have an extra heart in there the next time it comes around so well, the heart has blood um, but it doesn't need that <laughs> there's there's nothing that says it needs the blood in the heart it just needs the heart i think it's just implied <laughs> i don't know where's your evidence <laughs> it's i don't need because it. of that you're going on faith you're going on the faith system here Mm -hmm. but i gave it a four for powers wow 
So how about then detectability? So once again, I have to go back to the Rougarou and amend your your valid points. Damn. The fact I made that... some strong arguments in Rougarou then. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. I'm, I'm just trying to... I, I hope I remember. I'm remembering correctly. Not entirely sure. But I think for detectability, you did make the point that it can be found. If you can find its... Uh, if you can find its its ability, its, its skin, or for, at least for the the succulent, then mm-hmm. you you'd be able to um, yeah, because it puts it in its uh, mortar. It, it, it's mortar, right? So in this case, yeah, if you find the organs of the of the thing, well, from what I what I remember, oh uh, yeah, I didn't think of that. <laughs> I know, I think I know where you're going with this. Yeah, from what I uh, read, or was it? I don't know if I read. I I listened to a podcast that also talked about this, but. They were just kind of rambling. But essentially, in order to kill it, you have to find its organs and then you got to wait for it to return. Because they were saying that if you just go out and kill owls, <laughs> you're just going to kill an owl. You don't know if you're killing the right one. You got to f- wait for the thing to return so that you know it's getting the organs and then you go ahead and kill it. So you, so it's well, not. That doesn't make sense to me. Because why, if you found the organ, just kill it. The, if it comes back, it has the chance to kill you. So the thing is, you you don't kill it by killing its organs. You have to kill the thing itself. So that it goes against everything I've ever read about this <laughs> stickini. Then <laughs> this, I'm telling you, there's so many different ways of doing these things. Either way, the fact is that we, since we have these different uh, uh, abilities. To do this it drops the detectability for me to at oh, least no. a 2.5. You, you, oh, you son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> the, some of the things that I saw as I was going through it, that it is nearly indistinguishable while in human form during the day. Mm-hmm. And I saw some indications that maybe Stikini is a little bit more antisocial or awkward while in human form but not too much to really support that. But then it also got me thinking of, there was never like a clear indication of like some, some stikini that like if you became it and then like during the day you lived your normal life, mm-hmm. but in like some aspects of it, if you became the entity in your human form, you were still like a depraved bastard. So it wasn't yeah. quite, I guess there's, that's also some differences in the lore, I suppose of, some people may have control in during their human portion of the day and then lose control possibly during the night. But it normally will attack or kill targets that are asleep. So good luck defending yourself against that shit. <laughs> also, Angel, it can freaking fly. I still contend that it can fly. So good luck tracking it. The only way to really know if it was a stikini is if someone's heart was ripped out and I can't fault the creature on that because then I'm not going to be going after something that rips people's hearts out through their throats. That is what I like to call a deterrent. So because of that, I give, it might be controversial, a four. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we, we re- reversed. The Rougarou, you kind of gave it lower scores and I was giving it higher scores. <laughs> I think we did, yeah. Uh, how about the lore and mystique of this entity? 
Okay, so for the lore and mystique, I stopped thinking about the Rougarou because I'm like, okay, I, we got the the whole vampire Cause, werewolf Because, god damn it, we're, we're great in the stickini. <laughs> exactly. And uh, I said, so I want to look into the whole owl thing. And I looked up owl owls in mythology. So the idea of, of an owl being wise came from Indian folklore. And... Just, oh, okay. Yeah. So as I mentioned, the uh, I think it was uh, in the dodecahedron <laughs> episode, the information trickled west yep. to 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 it's the trickled trickled down knowledge <laughs> to the Greeks and then to the uh, to the Romans. Um, so yeah. So the Romans also had that belief of the of the owls being um, uh, representing wisdom and 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 being wise in. English folklore, they believed that eating owl eggs could cure alcoholism. What? (laughs) I don't don't understand how they even came to that. Might as well try the Greek cure for lycanthropy. Some (laughs) bloodletting and some opium (laughs) on the ears. It works just as well. So it says here in English literature, the barn owl had a sinister reputation because uh, it was a bird of darkness. During the 18th and 19th centuries, Robert Blair and William Wordsworth used the barn owl as their favorite bird of doom. They've also said barn owls have been used to predict the weather. The custom of nailing an owl to a barn door to ward off evil and lightning persisted into the 19th century. Yeah, but then it's going to like attract hellish demons to your barn. <laughs> <laughs> so this is interesting. This, this next section says um, owls in American Indian culture. And it lists a, a lot of the, uh, the tribes. Mm-hmm. And th- they vary so widely. Like it says, yeah. it says here to an Apache dreaming of an owl signified approaching death. Cherokee shamans valued Eastern screech owls as consultants as the owls could bring on sickness as punishment. Yeah, so like a little bit different than the Creek and Seminole because they saw it as like more just stay the hell away from me dangerous. Yeah. The Cree believed the boreal owls whistles were summons from the spirits. Um, the Dakota Hidatsa saw the burrowing owl as a protective spirit for brave warriors. So, yeah, so maybe the volleyball court is a safe place. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Only if I was a brave warrior. <laughs> oh, you're screwed. <laughs> Get back in your refrigerator box, damn it. I mean, this this, this goes on, but it's like... like like it's interesting because like some of these are like, oh, these owls are protected spirits. Other ones say, oh, this owl, if you see one, means somebody's gonna die. Another says the Mojave in, uh, of Arizona. It says, if one would become an owl after death. So there's there's so much owl stuff in in, in just all over the world that I think is interesting. Thinking how does that come to to this this one location where it's it's like oh this thing shapeshifts into an owl but it's a bad thing this, this it's just a lot of you know it's very a lot of information there 
and I I wish I could like just keep reading more about this kind of stuff. Yeah, it's endless endless research if I wanted to dig into this topic. Yeah, yeah, it's just like so uh, uh, so crazy because I would have to go back to like like some real real old like human history of relationships with animals and the interpretations of things and i think specifically for in in this aspects for some native americans like i said of the nighttime being like the domain of the underworld like yeah like being in a in a world where once night comes like there's a possibility that you might just die because <laughs> of things out in the woods that's some scary shit yeah um so it, it's I guess reasonable to believe then that some things that are found out in the woods from like dusk till dawn, a lot of lore would come about of like the noises in the woods, a lot of stories, just to pass the goddamn time of like storytelling being one of the most easiest of ways to bring a community together to sit around and tell a story of of uh, uh, of something like that. So it's uh, it's crazy, crazy interesting to me. Yeah. So, I gave it a four. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm at the same level of this for a four. Because, like, the... When I first started to look at it, though, I was even thinking, like, the form of this lore, I think, hurts it so much because of the oral tradition-based, because we are in such an age of dominated by written word, but now more dominated by uh, video that may or may not be true is a whole new aspect of that, like... Thing that we're gonna have to be dealing with in the future yeah um of being just represented as true but with bad intentions so i think a lot of the lore might get lost in this in the shuffle because of that but at the same time the idea that speaking of the entity opens you up to becoming it may also explain why there isn't just too much out there but then i also saw on the flip side of that for some cultures related to this uh, stikini that talking about it was more of a like open it was an open thing to talk about more of a like boogeyman sort of scenario yeah. of you, you tell children about it to sort of say like you better behave or the stikini is going to get you idea yeah. yeah the the more i think about it the lesser amounts of details that uh freaking it just shrouds this thing in mystery like sort of the old saying like less is more right yeah. um and that just makes it more intriguing and it's I think it's tied to, like I was saying, aspects of the night is full of terrors. So, like, stay inside. It's some, like, real basic human instincts, I think, to be afraid of the nighttime, of what things are out there in the darkness. If you do accept the idea that it's a vengeance entity unleashed beyond control, then that's also pretty damn badass. So if its power is granted by some sort of higher entity... Uh, and maybe to this tabletop entity, then that <laughs> entity answered your call for whatever reason so it grants you this power to exact whatever vengeance is in your heart but at the same time at what price so it's almost like the classic dark night line of you either die a hero or you live long enough to, to see yourself become the villain yeah <laughs> sort of uh <laughs> explains the stikini a little bit there and yeah that i gave it a four one of the crucial <laughs> crucial elements in the rubric of power cunning and intelligence uh the cunning so i th i th based on what i've read about this creature it almost comes off as a kind of like zombie like 
Like it, ha- it, it throws mm-hmm. up its organs. It goes, it seeks out a human and eats its heart. And then it comes back. I don't, there's no, I mean, I haven't found any mention of how it goes about hunting. How does it find a human? Does it just approach them and take their hearts out? I yeah. mean, there's no trickery involved. There's no seducing or anything. I don't think it's that, uh, you know, it's 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 not planning anything. It just goes out and it does its thing and then it comes back. And then during the day, as a human, it, even as a human, it's kind of awkward, you mentioned. It's like, doesn't really... Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. It just seems like it's a mindless uh, thing that just has to continue doing its thing in order to continue to live. Whether if it's whether it's uh, under its own control or not. I gave it a 2.5. Okay. So, get ready. <laughs> uh, get the buckle ready. Angel. Oh, no. Hold on tight. This one's interesting compared to the way that I looked at our other shape changer, the Ruguru. Because... Mm-hmm. The way, you know, that I was looking at, there doesn't seem to be the same weaknesses others have of of losing oneself in the creature, meaning like your your mental wherewithal that I explained with the Ruguru, you know, if like if you get things thrown at you and you have to count it, that you lose your abilities to, you know, mentally comprehend what numbers are past the number 13. I think I even saw some aspects of like trying to game the system of the rules of the Stikini a little bit in the, the way that it devours hearts that I saw one source claiming that the Stikini would take the heart, but not consume it immediately. And it sort of maybe goes into a little bit of what in the very beginning DR talks about when in the introduction of the Stikini that it brought the heart to a pot and like prepared the food there. One source said that it would in fact use the heart to make a potion of sorts. By consuming a small amount of the potion, it would suppress the desire to consume more hearts. So it sort of like beats the idea of having to kill nightly because of its potion. It can stretch that out over several nights. So that was like some real Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde shit going on. Yeah. And the way that I was looking at it was that, that there had to be some sort of intelligent thought behind that process of understanding that you have to make it last several nights to not have to kill every single night it's i took a cue from your book took a page right out it was the i was like it's a it's a human it's a human but at night it changes so i gave it a four what is going on (laughs) to keep you updated that is four fours that i've given this thing you were you were aiming you were aiming to topple Santa, weren't you? Uh-huh. <laughs> this is this feels like the Wendigo episode all over. It's like high score, high score, high score. Impact on popular culture. Now I don't know if you're gonna surprise me, but I'm I'm sure our scores are gonna be similar here. <laughs> I'm sure of it. I think the four. <laughs> I went five. <laughs> The pop culture impact. I there's. I think all I could find was maybe there's the the uh, the not even the TV show the Doctor Who comic. Oh yeah, <laughs> the comic called the, the the story called is the the story is called the Parliament of Fear and it involves the Stakini, which was a group of elder peoples that came from the Red Skies, a region in Dream Space. If any Doctor Who fans out there 
understands that, great, because I don't know what I just read. Yeah, that sounds like some H.P. Lovecraft light <laughs> shit. <laughs> but I think besides that, I don't, I don't recall ever seeing anything or hearing anything like that. I mean, even down here in Florida, you know, I, I heard about the Stakini from that, that tour I took for the Everglades, but I heard more about Skunk Ape <laughs> everywhere else, you know? <laughs> so I gave it a 1.5. Yeah, it doesn't have a, a, a damn roller coaster like like the Ruguru <laughs> does in Ohio. Yeah. I mean, oh, God. I, I think I've said it before how some, like, regional creatures really get hit hard here, but I can't even honestly call this one a regional creature by the normal connotation that I apply to that term. I have no idea why this thing is not out there so much because it is badass. Yeah. But there is no representation of this thing at all anywhere in popular culture. It hasn't made that like jump, I think, anywhere. There's some beyond the tabletop RPG that you brought up when during the conversation here like there's some like other tabletop things that it's made its way into but that that's almost every creature <laughs> find its way into some tabletop rpg yeah especially things from native american lore i could not find anything out there of really any significance maybe like a, a comic book where it makes an appearance one time or something like that I, I i am sad to say not even a beer that i could locate that had this creature's name bearing on its label yeah I am appalled that some <laughs> microbrew in Oklahoma or Florida has not claimed this thing uh, to just slap onto a label. Well, well, I have a note. I, I wrote a note here saying that maybe this low score is a good thing. We don't want this to be a, a conscious thing in the public eye because maybe it's true what they say about you becoming oh, one shit. if you start putting it out there. Mm-hmm. We'll see if the next episode airs or not. <laughs> we'll have some technical difficulties. Yeah. <laughs> We're gonna next episode just gonna be. Hoo, 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 hoo. <laughs> uh, so impact on pop culture a one. Mm. What then does your score add up to? Fourteen. And on my side, I have a seventeen. So that gives us a 15.5 score for the Stakini. That's amazing. I'm going to bring up uh, an interesting, I think it's interesting. Let me see if I, so what What was your total? 17. So my total for the Rougarou was a 16.75. Damn. So yeah, we did a, a complete reversal. Did we sw- <laughs> did we swap bodies? <laughs> <laughs> and not only that, but the Stakini, despite my protest in the score, hoping the score would bring it down, my scoring would bring it down, it still beats out the Rougarou. Oh, does it? Yes. Rougarou has thirteen point eight seven five. Damn. So it's it's is, trying to make its way towards Santa. <laughs> how's how's it look against uh, Wendigo with season one? Wendigo. I can't remember this. Stuff. Oh my God! It destroyed the Wendigo. Wendigo had fifteen point thirty six. 
Dang. So if this was season one, Stikini would be number one. Yep. Uno King. Yep. And when I when I put my score together, I even thought like, oh, does this thing even have a chance of beating Santa Claus? And I, and I like calculated the score. Even if you had would have given it a perfect twenty, it still would not have been enough to beat Santa Claus. It would have been like uh, 0.5 away from beating Santa Claus, from matching how, Santa Claus. How, how did we something get, like that? How did we give Santa such a high score? Did we go off the chart? I think we I think we were both in the eighteens. <laughs> Maybe a 19? I don't know. That's absurd. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cracking Cryptids and Curios. Hopefully you learned uh, something interesting about this Native American entity and had some fun along the way. I certainly had some fun researching it. So next time we will be taking a look at two curious items. The first one, the Bassano vase, and seeing what exactly is the deal with this vase even instead of vase if you want to get special with the words uh and then the archimedes mirror so screw you roman dodecahedron we don't like the romans we love the greeks we're going with archimedes mirror <laughs> so this is all just a big old uh commercial for visiting south florida where you can go <laughs> see the uh Get some uh, go sem- to the Everglades. <laughs> go to the Everglades and get a tour from the Seminole guides there, and then hey, pay a visit to the Hard Rock Cafe, ho- guitar-shaped hotel. It's amazing. God damn it, Florida <laughs> tourist board, get us on board. <laughs> Not only that, but every year they host the Seminole Tribal Fair and powwow. Uh, you can go and get your fry bread. Come on, guys, get some fry bread and uh, buy various trinkets. You can watch shows, Gator Wrestling. That's always fun to watch. Of course, mm-hmm. the 2021 Seminole Tribal Fair event is postponed until further notice. So why would I have to oh, advertise shit. it? <laughs> As we uh, tuck away the this little night night owl. Let me chew this uh, dainty morsel. I have my mouth. Spit it back into the... <laughs> Stikini's mouth. Morsel. Nourish it. Right, is that a throwback to Peter Stump? <laughs> Peter Stump. Yeah. <laughs> I ate a child's heart. That's something I do. I guess I am the Stikini now. Man was wrongly accused for being a Protestant. There, I said it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we've learned some things about Peter Stump afterwards. That's, uh, we may have to do a Peter Stump special. And if you guys are interested in hearing that Peter Stump special, please make sure to tag us on Twitter with at Cracking Curios with hashtag Cracked Cryptids. Or if you don't want to hear about Peter Stump at all, you know, still send us a message. And also, we we mentioned it earlier. We got to talk to Carl Shooker. So you got to at him as well, at Carl Shooker, and ask him about this, uh, what was it, the the book, the, the this latest book on... His, um, his big cats. On big cats, that's right. The, the destroying, killing, killing the sheep, yep. um, <laughs> sieging the <laughs> British Isles. These big cats. Yeah, um, you can also follow us on Instagram at Cracking Cryptids. There we uh, try to post. Uh, I haven't been posting as much as I should be because I'm not really uh, that well versed into the social media stuff, but I'm getting there. <laughs> season three is our social media <laughs> it's, it's, it's gonna be our it's gonna be our, yeah. our year 
<laughs> and uh, if you want to send us an email, you can send it at crackingcryptidsandcurials at gmail.com. I, I, something like, I live on a boat. The Stagini cannot smell himself. Good night. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs>